Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, the United States has launched 59 Tomahawk missiles at an airbase in Syria, a swift and decisive response to the Syrian government's use of chemical weapons against its own people. It's President Trump's first military action and the first time that the White House has ordered such action against forces loyal to Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. And it happened. The United States Senate went nuclear. Will the unforeseen consequences of a historically divided Congress ultimately be unity? It's Friday, April 7th. On Thursday night, President Trump spoke from Mar-a-Lago. My fellow Americans, on Tuesday, Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad launched a horrible chemical weapons attack on innocent civilians. Using a deadly nerve agent, Assad choked out the lives of helpless men, women, and children. It was a slow and brutal death for so many. Even beautiful babies were cruelly murdered in this very barbaric attack. No child of God should ever suffer such horror. Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. Hello? Helene, it's Michael Barbaro. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Thanks for letting me call you so late. No problem. My colleague Helene Cooper covers the Pentagon for the Times. I called her shortly after learning of the attacks. What happened on Thursday night? So these Tomahawk cruise missiles were launched from two Navy warships in the eastern Mediterranean. The attack took place over the course of three to four minutes. They targeted Syrian fighter jets fuel depots and other infrastructure, but the military official that I just spoke with said that there were no Russian planes at the airbase and no Russian facilities were targeted. Interestingly, the Pentagon says that they did alert Russian military officials before the Mm -hmm. strike that this was happening through their normal deconfliction channels, because Russia, as you know, is Mm -hmm. also operating in Syria, and they didn't want to... um, 
hit any Russian planes in the sky with all those Tomahawk cruise missiles coming in. But this official also acknowledged that telling the Russians beforehand runs a big risk because that means you're probably alerting the Syrian regime as well. Helene, this occurred just hours after the Trump administration said they were considering their options in Syria. This feels like very fast action, is it? It's hugely fast, especially given that we've just come out of eight years in of, of a Barack Obama presidency mm-hmm. in which, you know, he was very, very measured and considered, especially when it comes to using deadly force. A lot of people will say sometimes to a fault. I think what you're seeing now is going from President Obama, who took a lot of time to make these types of decisions, to President Trump, who is very quick. He was very quick to say that he was moved by this chemical weapons attack. And once, you know, he started calling this heinous and we're going to do something, you kind of pretty much could assume that we were going to go ahead with this strike. He was presented with several options Mm -hmm. from Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. And this is considered to be sort of at the limited end of the scale. They could have gone for trying to take out Syria's air defense systems completely, which would be pretty much a declaration of war because they went after targeted one fairly remote airfield that was, they believe, proportional to the chemical weapons attack. The hope is that it's not going to provoke an over-the-top reaction from Russia, but that remains to be seen. It just It's striking that this was the exact same situation, a chemical attack by the same Syrian leader against his people for both President Obama, who did not act, and for President Trump, who has. Yeah, I think that's that's a very interesting point. And I think that says a lot about both men. President Obama was very loath to do anything that would pull the United States into greater military conflict without first going through every possible consequence. And I don't think that President Trump necessarily puts it through the same, the same rigor. Helene, what's the intention of a limited strike like this? The intention is to send a message to Bashar al-Assad that the United States is under new management and will not tolerate a chemical weapons attack, that he's gone too far. It's very much a watch yourself and don't do this again. But, you know, there is a school of thought that once you start down this road, you've sort of opened the United States up to a more aggressive military engagement in Syria. And anybody who has studied Iraq will tell you that, you know, for all of the mess and the conundrum of Iraqi politics and the fracturing of all these tribal structures that we see now to this day, years after the Iraqi invasion of 2003, Syria is 50 times worse. As you've said, Russian military are in Syria and Russia is fighting alongside Syria. If we attack Syria, I guess I shouldn't say if, we have just attacked Syria, are we in any way provoking Russia? Well, we're absolutely provoking Russia, but Russia provoked us by going into Syria to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you can make the art. Yes, we're certainly provoking Russia. And there are people who will debate that uh, where this leads, you know, from both sides of the fence. You know, the Trump administration will say now that Rex Tillerson can go into talks with Moscow and say, you need to use your influence to stop Assad from doing this anymore. And if you don't, you now see the consequence. You know, that's one way to look at it. Another possible way to look at it is that you get into a situation of Russia versus the United States starting to go mano a mano and feeling that they have to up the ante. I don't think we know how this plays out yet. You mentioned that with a limited strike, President Trump thinks he's being pretty careful 
in his approach here. Nevertheless, are we now at war with Syria? I don't know the answer to whether we are at war. We're certainly, you know, many people will say that, and especially if you get civilian casualties. Technically, we're not, there's no declaration of mm-hmm. war with Syria, but that's a fine, that's a pretty fine point. And that's something that, you know, many smarter people than me will, will debate forever. I'm going to have to run, Michael. Thank you, Helene. I'm I Michael, really appreciate your time. Good saying. luck. Okay, bye. Bye. Tonight I call on all civilized nations to join us in seeking to end the slaughter and bloodshed in Syria and also to end terrorism of all kinds and all types. We ask for God's wisdom as we face the challenge of our very troubled world. We pray for the lives of the wounded, and for the souls of those who have passed. And we hope that as long as America stands for justice, then peace and harmony will, in the end, prevail. Good night, and God bless America and the entire world. Thank you. We'll be right back. What's good for society can also be good for your bottom line. And with iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can do more to build a strong portfolio for the long term. iShares Sustainable ETFs seek to deliver long-term outcomes by providing access to quality companies that may be better positioned to manage sustainability risks. Get a new perspective on your portfolio with iShares Sustainable ETFs. Learn more at iShares.com sustainable. Then I press. Hey, I'm trying to reach Jennifer Steinhauer. Hold on just a moment. Hello. Jennifer. Yes. It's Michael. Hi. Hi. I'm in a phone booth. Jennifer, you're in the Capitol. You're calling us. Or actually, I called you. Yeah. <laughs> in the Capitol building. You called me. For the record. Um, what did the Senate do yesterday? Republicans in the Senate yesterday successfully moved to remove the filibuster abilities of the minority on Supreme Court nominees. This is something that was started by Senator Harry Reid when he was the majority leader in 2013 when he removed that filibuster ability for non-Supreme Court nominees and cabinet uh, positions. What actually happened in that chamber on Thursday leading to this? So, um, the clerk will report the motion to invoke cloture. Republicans in the Senate yesterday... Cloture motion. We, the undersigned senators, in accordance with the provisions of Rule 22 of the Standing Rules of the Senate, do hereby move to bring to a close debate on the nomination of Neil M. Gorsuch of Colorado. Call the vote. Mr. Alexander. To go ahead and move to advancing the final confirmation, Judge Gorsuch. Ms. Baldwin. Yes. Mr. Barrasso. Aye. Mr. Bennett. Democrats um, did not provide the number of uh, votes needed to move forward with confirmation. And so at that moment, it was quite interesting because usually when you have votes, especially if you have one vote, senators come into the chamber, um, they tend to come a little late when it's the first vote of the day, they're coming from their offices, they're Mm -hmm. coming from appointments, they zip in, they vote, and they leave. In this case, senators, by and large, took their seats at their desk 
which is somewhat always a bit has a foreboding feel to it. Mm -hmm. And there was some back and forth between... Our Democratic colleagues appear poised to block this incredible nominee. Senator Mitch McConnell. With the first successful partisan filibuster in American history. It would be a radical move. And Senator Chuck Schumer of New York. Now, how did we get here? The minority leader, the Democratic leader. For two decades, they have done whatever it has taken to move the bench to an ideological far-right position. Another extreme escalation in the left's never-ending drive to politicize the courts and the confirmation process. We believe we had to change the rules in 2013 because the Republicans ramped up the use of the filibuster to historic proportions. When President Clinton nominated Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Senate confirmed her 96 to 3. When President Clinton nominated Stephen Breyer, the Senate confirmed him 87 to 9. I, like the vast majority of Republicans, voted for both of them. Two words, Merrick Garland. After we got through uh, that parliamentarian trolling, essentially. <laughs> Mr. Sullivan. Aye. Mr. Tester. Mr. Thune. They moved to vote to change the rule. Mr. Tillis. Mr. Toomey. Of course, that was a partisan vote. And then they went ahead and... Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to change his or her vote? Seeing none, the vote, final vote is 55 yeas, 45 nays. Successfully moved to remove the filibuster abilities of the minority on Supreme Court nominees. Over the past 24 hours, we've heard a number of senators agonize over this all, even as they are moving forward with this process and getting to this historic moment. And that's the part that really gets me. How much of this hand-wringing that we saw is theater, and how much of this is about senators who are deeply conflicted about what they're doing here? I would say it's both. I think that, especially for the institutionalists among the Republicans, like John McCain, for example. I think it's a dark day in the history of the United States Senate. It's going to happen, and uh, it's interesting that Republicans were dead set against it when my former colleague Harry Reid invoked it with the judges. But now uh, it seems to be uh, okay. They truly thought this was a blow to the way the Senate operates. Obviously, Democrats were extremely upset because they were already fueled by their unhappiness about what happened with President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, when Mr. McConnell wouldn't even allow him to have a hearing. We Democrats have given Judge Gorsuch a fair process, something Merrick Garland was denied. Having said that, Democrats, when being honest, which is to say not publicly, recognized that had the shoes been on the other feet, Hillary Clinton had won, Democrats were controlling the Senate, they probably would have done the exact same thing. So there's plenty of blame to go around. Honest senators on both sides will say that. Um, none of them thought it was a banner day, but some were certainly more upset than others. Those senators who said they were disgusted. Mr. President, the Senate's nearly 230 years. The filibuster has been used to block a Supreme Court nominee exactly once. What does this moment represent to them? Well, Senator McConnell said something on the floor today, which I thought was true. This isn't really about the nominee anyway. The opposition to this particular nominee is more about the man that nominated him and the party he represents than the nominee himself. Which is true. Uh, there are 
very profound and special uh, feelings of rage toward this particular president. And it's also true, which he didn't mention specifically, that it's about him, Mitch McConnell, and what he did with Merrick Garland in mm-hmm. refusing to allow him to even have a hearing. You told us that this was going to happen when we spoke to you a little bit earlier this week. And this was the expected outcome. And yet it feels big, like this fundamental shift in what the Senate is and how the Senate works. It's it's a bit of a shock. Is that how it feels to you and in the Senate? I will answer that question yes and no. Yes, in the sense that a giant boulder of bipartisan rancor has been rolling down the hill and picking up speed basically since we've got divided government in 2011. And the first real shock to the system was in 2013 when Harry Reid, then majority leader, did this. This was sort of the final smashing of the rock, if you will, and it had that jolt. Having said that, I would also submit to you that putting that past them, going on recess, it has been almost a sobering event as well. What do you mean? Well, first of all, the Senate likes to look at itself as different from the House, which it is in so many ways. But one is that it has minority empowerment to keep crazy laws, crazy nominees from both parties in check, off the books. And by reducing the minority's rights on judicial appointments, it almost automatically guarantees that the judiciary will become as hyperpartisan as the other branches of government because they're subject to only the majority's nod, more or less. The cooling saucer of the Senate will get considerably hotter. That's a recipe for more conflict and bad blood between the parties, not less. So it's been a bit of a shock to the system that I think very possibly could actually have um, the opposite effect, Hmm. which is to make the senators come together and realize they need to actually start getting serious about legislation, especially in areas, quite frankly, in the Trump era, that may be a check on the president or in sometimes advancing his agenda in a way that both parties can live with or that enough Democrats can live with in ways that the president himself has been able to do and certainly the House has been able to do, as we see in health care. So this actually may be a sobering moment that, that could lead to some productivity. Was there a particular moment that stuck out to you from today? You've covered this body for a considerably long period of time. What really struck me today was looking out on the floor and seeing senators from both parties chit-chatting about other matters, appropriations, health care, preserving the filibuster on legislation, which was a big topic on the floor, as I understand it, among senators. I was actually more surprised by at least the veneer of comedy than I think in the genuine bipartisan discussions that stood out in contrast to just this kind of sheer unpleasantness and nastiness. Make no mistake, people were upset on Thursday, but I think that there's a forward look that didn't exist last time. It sounds like you're saying that this is the end of some very long, drawn-out bloodletting and that maybe they're ready to reevaluate what led to that and repair the wound? Um, Wasn't it Winston Churchill who said maybe it's um, the end of the beginning? Hmm. Jennifer, thank you very much. I'll let you get back to work. I hope that was helpful, Michael. It always is, and I will speak with you again very soon. I look forward to it. Bye. Bye. Today's vote is a cautionary tale about how unbridled partisan escalation can ultimately overwhelm our basic inclination to work together. There's a reason it was dubbed the nuclear option. It's the most extreme measure 
with the most extreme consequences. And while I'm sure we will continue to debate what got us here, I know that in 20 or 30 or 40 years, we will sadly point to today as a turning point in the history of the Senate and the Supreme Court. Let us go no further on this path. Here's what else we're following into the weekend. The Times reports that President Trump is planning to sign an executive order that would punish China for its trade practices, such as dumping cheap steel into the American market, just after Chinese President Xi Jinping leaves Mar-a-Lago, where he's meeting with Trump. And after weeks of criticism that he was no longer impartial, Republican Representative Devin Nunes has recused himself from the role of chairman of the House Committee investigating Russian meddling into the 2016 election. Finally, there will be lots to learn over the next few days about the world's response to the U.S. airstrikes in Syria, from Russia to NATO to Congress. We'll be back on Monday. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Andy Mills, and Lisa Tobin. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Special thanks to Samantha Hennig, Pedro Rosado, Rachel Quester, Michaela Bouchard, and Peter Sale. If you want more of The Daily in your life, you can sign up to receive a text from me about the news and this show by texting the word DAILY to the number 63937. That's 63937. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you on Monday. It's okay to have questions about COVID-19 vaccines. Should I get it? Should I wait? Is it safe? Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so that you can make an informed decision when COVID-19 vaccines are available to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council.